Welcome to Bespin Ice Cream Stand. I'm Joshua Rourke. With me in CGI for the first time, Bennett Campbell Ferguson. <laughs> Hello. I'm, I'm excited to be in CGI with uh, presumably a lot of uh, blue screen and an untested Sony digital camera that George Lucas uh, really should have thought about more before he used, maybe? Uh, uh? Well, it's episode two, Josh, and I'm going to give it a whopping two stars. <laughs> <laughs> um I, I have to disagree this time i i thought about it a lot uh and i'm gonna go ahead and give it the coveted one star out of four whoa that's uh <laughs> somewhere uh somewhere count dooku is crying all over his cape no i i've been talking to friends about it i wanted to give it you know a poop emoji out of four or something clever but honestly um I think out of the whole Star Wars saga, this is like the one that that made me lose all faith. Like episode <laughs> one, yeah, it was bad, but I saw it when I was young, so it was sort of magical at times, right? Uh, and episode two was when it was like, oh, we're we're not getting a prequel trilogy that we want. We're getting something else. And and for me, it cemented the idea that like George Lucas didn't quite know what he was doing uh, as as far as making a prequel trilogy I wanted to see. That, that makes a lot of sense, and I can I totally like see like I I think you know like I have a more positive outlook on the film even even though I think it's pretty terrible. But like you and I were in were in very different places when we saw it. Like for me, it, it was this was the first Star Wars movie I saw in theaters. I was like ten years old or something, so like I was still it was still kind of that that rush of the whole thing still felt new and cool and exciting and also like in at the time like i just like didn't rate movies the way i would rate them now like i i was not blind as a kid to the fact that you know the anakin padme love scenes are absolutely awful like i fully you know understood that it was just that you know my logic was and literally literally i, th I think this is kind of how i thought about it my logic was jango fett is a really cool character Therefore, it's a really cool movie. And just because you have to sit through crap to get to Django Fett doesn't, you know, mean the whole movie's crap. So, <laughs> Well, I, I mean, to go back, and I think we should touch on it more later, but uh, I don't know if it registered as, like, bad, uh, the, like, the love or the romance in the movie to me. When I was 16, yeah, yeah, obviously, like, the sand line. Uh, and like moments like that are, are super cheesy, of course. But I think at the time I thought like, like 16 year old me thought that girls were unattainable and therefore I didn't understand love. And therefore this movie did represent love and it wasn't cheesy. And it was only subsequent viewings where I realized like, oh my God, no, this is the worst thing ever. <laughs> uh, as far as dialogue, as far as developing uh, romance, developing character, uh, making you feel like, oh, I see why these characters would would love one another, like like none of that is really set up. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's definitely not. And I think the things that become more unpardonable about the movie as you get older, like re really, it comes down to to character. I mean, first of all, there's the problem that the, the last like you know chunk of the movie gets really sort of lost in a, a deluge of just CGI crap with the droid army and the clone army. And it, it's just, it's basically just like looking at psychedelic nonsense for, you know, the last bit of the movie. 
And just the fact that, you know, the whole thing has to hinge on the love story. I mean, it's really important. You know, the, the love story has to work for the the tragedy of Anakin Skywalker to really mean something, for it to feel like something's been lost. And instead, and I'm going to talk about this a bit more later, but we, we have a love story that just absolutely makes no sense. Like, it, it doesn't make sense what the attraction is. The actors, you know, it's not that just that they have no chemistry. It's that they have, like, negative chemistry like less than zero and it's just you know the whole idea that oh you know a, a, a you know a successful politician you know her big dream is to uh you know marry this stalker that's 10 years younger than her i mean it just I'm, I'm sorry like the to me like that's less believable than the idea that there's a magical power that allows people to make things float <laughs> Every time I rewatch it, I think how hollow the whole relationship is. It's only there because it's supposed to happen, because it's supposed to be that way. And I think neither character is very charismatic, particularly um, uh, with one another. All the scenes just are, are so cringe-inducing. I don't even know where to <laughs> where to begin. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting. Like it's it, it's a tough film, and in, in a lot of ways, it's it's worse than the Phantom Menace. I mean. I talked about, you know, the, the story structure of uh, episode one last time and the, the story structure here like takes a, a major nosedive, you know, very kind of, I think, awkwardly cuts between uh, Anakin's storyline and Obi-Wan's, you know, search for the mystery of the clones and Sifo-Deas and all that, you know, blather. I, I think like the, the, like what keeps it from, what kept it from me from like going to, you know, one star or one and a half stars was there are like moments where I feel like it just, you know, is uh, actually really, really beautiful. Like I think that the, the speeder chase through Coruscant is like, honestly, like one of the most beautiful things George Lucas has done. And I thought, I think like the world of Coruscant in particular in this film, like it just really kind of envelops you and the, and the colors are so, vibrant all the the kind of the the neon light of the speeders and the buildings and the the billboards so there's i mean there's a lot of you know like moments like that that i just think are kind of sensational and poetic and and for me like when i watch the movie you know remind me of like what you know george lucas can be when he's at his best but you know inevitably there's something that brings you down from that high you know whether it's the 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 sand line or or just you know <laughs> getting uh getting lost in in stuff we we don't care about or, or just really you know like any uh shot where you have to look at hayden christensen's terrible haircut <laughs> no no i i think you touched on it um there's some really great sequences just like episode one seems like there's these great set pieces and then a stupid story that has to tie them together like, like for me, and I, I'm sure a million people have already talked about this, but I feel like the movie would have worked better as like the buddy Jedi comedy or whatever, where Obi-Wan and Anakin are doing everything together instead. And you can just touch on the relationship a little bit instead of... And it, 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 the way that it's designed right now, it's as if it's building a relationship and you and the audience understands, oh, this is why they're falling in love. Um, but obviously that didn't work. 
Whereas if it was like, um, you know, Obi-Wan and Anakin just kicking ass and, you know, fighting Jango Fett and stuff, I think that would have been a lot stronger. For a trilogy that, you know, is, is really supposed to be about a, a mentor and a, a protege, they spend surprisingly little time together because they get they get split up in Attack of the Clones. And then even in Revenge of the Sith, you know, they co spend a couple, you know, days on Coruscant before Obi-Wan has to go off and fight general grievous and then you know by the time they reunite at the end you know they've gone 360 from you know being allies to being enemies and i think you know you needed they needed to like work the the, the bromance angle harder like we needed to believe in their relationship and and in care about their relationship and enjoy their relationship the same way we did with uh with with luke and han where before you know they split them up in the original trilogy you had a whole movie of them teaming up and and arguing and you know like braving danger together and they're just they're just like isn't that same rapport and therefore there's like there just isn't the same level of investment which you know again that you know that really becomes a problem in revenge of the sith because you're not that heartbroken over you know the the failure of a relationship that was we didn't invest that much in to begin with because like what was the extent of the relationship you know obi anakin was an asshole obi-wan nagged him a bunch you know <laughs> whatever i'm over it <laughs> yeah no for sure for sure and and also in episode one did a poor job of setting up like a love story like they had a few scenes of dialogue but obviously it's you know a different actor you're looking at a kid you know talking to natalie portman who's you know what 10 years younger practically or whatever it is seven I feel like it, it, it doesn't seem like the tri uh, the prequel trilogy was written all at once. That brings up something I want to talk about, actually, because I think one of the interesting things about, about George Lucas was that he sort of uh, he sort of approached the prequels uh, like in the way in terms of like like production, the way that Pixar approaches their movies, where there's there's kind of this, you know, this method of of trial and, and error it's like you know we have time we have money so you know we can uh, we can get it wrong a lot of times before we get it right you know we can afford to to do that and so it's funny like you know all the prequels they each had a three-year gap between them but in fact you know revenge like your revenge of the sith you know actually started filming about a year after attack of the clones came out so that's i mean you, you think about that that's like you know like one year that he was, you know, scrambling to get this script together and, you know, going in with, you know, maybe a, a product that was, you know, obviously not, you know, fully formed and trusting that he was, uh, he was gonna be able to, you, you know, kind of like, like find the film in the, in the editing room and, and do reshoots later of which he did, you know, multiple rounds of reshoots, except the thing is that, you know, George Lucas, you know, even even though he had, you know, a, a hand in the creation of Pixar, he's not Pixar. You know, Lucasfilm isn't Pixar. There's there's not the same infrastructure and there's not the same, you know, attention to character and humanity and humor, or at least there wasn't at the time. <laughs> George Lucas, like I believe, started, you know, what ultimately became, you know, Pixar, although it only became, you know, what it was after it was no longer under his control. And I think there was, you know, George Lucas and there was Rick McCallum, who, <laughs> which I don't, I, I don't, I clearly Rick McCallum did not challenge him a lot. 
No, for sure. I mean, he seems like a yes man completely. I don't ever feel like he he would be like, George, that sucks. It always seems like he's talking in like the prequel interviews about like George's vision. And it seems like Rick McCollum is trying to reap George Lucas's rewards. Like he lucked into this position. And maybe that's reductive to say that, but um, I, I think I think that's um, ultimately what's wrong with the whole trilogy is nobody said no to George Lucas. Nobody said, hey, maybe we should get a rewrite on this script. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's like definitely like among you know film buffs, there's a tendency to be, you know, obsessed with the O'Tour theory. And I absolutely really have have that myself. But. And I don't, and I don't think the auteur theory is a bad thing. I think it's very useful in in terms of you know understanding movies better. But I think you know there's a mistake in thinking that you know the auteur theory means that the director has the same relationship to the film as you know a a, a painter you know has to their painting. It's it's just not that. It's it's meant to be a team effort. You know, as a medium, it's designed to be that and when you have everyone you know serving the the whims of a of you know of a guy who's, who's basically making a an independent film for over a hundred million dollars you just it's it's just it's just not like a healthy relationship no not at all not at all not at all there's the george lucas revisionist that sort of don't believe george lucas had anything to do with the original trilogy being good <laughs> to some degree or rather that he had so much help. And and I do think that's important to highlight all the people who collaborated on the original trilogy that made it uh, such a strong, you know, piece of work. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think the prequel trilogy doesn't seem like a collaborative thing. It seems like people serving George Lucas's every whim. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, it's 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 always good to be mindful of, you know, the the nature of the collaboration. I mean, you know, I mean, let's face it, The Empire Strikes Back could not have been the masterpiece that it is without, you know, Lawrence Kasdan writing and Irving Kirshner directing. But uh, but Kasdan and Kirshner couldn't have achieved what they did had George Lucas, you know, not created the universe in the first place. So it's like you need like that healthy symbiosis of, you know, good ideas coming from, you know, different directions and and nurturing each other. I think. And I think pushback, I think uh, restrictions really help art in, in most cases. So my first segment is going to be a uh, character profile from a, a distinguished uh, politician who died uh, very tragically in the aftermath of the Clone Wars, Senator Padme Amidala. And I wanted to talk about her because I, I feel that, you know, Padme, the way she is written kind of sums up a lot of what's wrong with the prequel trilogy and specifically Attack of the Clones. And and in particular, I was, I was thinking about her, you know, in in contrast to, to Princess Leia and the fact that, you know, certainly I don't think of, you know, the original trilogy as being hugely progressive in terms of its depiction of women because really you know the focal point of those movies is uh is han and luke you know they're they're the characters with dramatic arcs you know luke goes from being a boy to a man han goes from being a cynic to an idealist i mean that's that's just what those movies are you know that's you know what made them what they were and a lot of things but you know nevertheless you know princess leia was you know always you know a a badass wise you know witty 
strong-willed character. And you would hope that, you know, as, you know, the series progressed into the future, things would get better. And with the, the prequels, they actually got a lot worse. And I think, you know, even they got worse from, you know, Phantom Menace to Attack of the Clones. Because I, I do like, you know, Padme's journey in, in Menace because there, there's something like kind of very, very Henry V about her disguising herself as a commoner, kind of like, sort of like descending into the lower strata of society, you know, for the good of her people. And then at the end, uh, taking control. I mean, honestly, I mean, people are, might think I'm weird but for this, but one of my favorite moments in Star Wars is when she says, and now, Viceroy, we will discuss a new treaty. <laughs> you know, like, if, if that was the Padme, like, we had throughout, you know, the whole prequel trilogy, I think we would have had a great character who is worthy of Leia's legacy. And instead, you know, what we get is in clones, you know, a character who just, you know, makes all of these choices that are, you know, totally unbelievable based on what we know of her as a, a human being. And I think, you know, the, the thing to note is, you know, it's, it's clear that, you know, she's not into Anakin at the beginning of the film. She rebuffs him multiple times. You know, she, uh, she says, uh, she says, she even says, you know, he makes her feel uncomfortable, which, you know, the risk of saying the obvious, never a good sign, not what you want to hear. And yet the thing that the big catalyst between, uh, between the, that part of the story and them getting married at the end is Anakin, you know, uh, committing genocide <laughs> of all things. I mean, on, on Tatooine, you know, he says it himself, you know, after he's killed the the sand people, he says, you know, I killed them. And not just the men, too. The women and the children. I They're animals, and I slaughtered them like animals. I hate them. And her response to that is, and, and just, I think, I know, I'm sure everyone who's listening remembers this all too well, but I just think it's important to just note the strangeness of this response. Her answer is, to be angry is to be human. He says, I committed a genocide. And she says, to be angry is to be human. Like, like no one, uh, no one would say that to, you know, uh, Hitler or Stalin. And, and yet, you know, she says that to Anakin. And it's after that, that, you know, she like, you know, gives him a big fat kiss and they, they get married. And it's just, you know, like, uh, I think, you know, obviously all the characters in this film, are really weak but i i think you know padme in particular there's a there's a sense of like the major female character is the one who's pretty much chosen to be in service to the plot even if like you know the plot's demands completely conflict you know with what you know you would presume she would want as a as, as a human being and, it, and it's really honestly like the writing is, is so bad in that respect that i think it's honestly kind of insulting and i think the only silver lining is that you know this was really the the bottom of the barrel and, and things did get better in um, um force awakens last jedi rise of skywalker because even though ray is also kind of like defined by her relationship to you know men you know between luke and han and kylo at least you know there's a sense that in in those films you know the the plot is serving her and not the other way around and that you know she's not just kind of a in an, an instrument 
in you know the the journeys of these these male characters. So I, when I think about you know things about Attack of the Clones that just absolutely infuriate me, to me you know I go back to uh, to be angry is to be human because I really I really feel like that's kind of just I mean it was it was it was honestly I think it was a new low for Star Wars. It's I think it's uh, convenient too uh, that they had to have that genocide scene and then it's like well. Uh... Obviously, they talk about it, but I'll float this idea. What if Padme is just racist? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I can't argue with that. You know, I mean, may, maybe, I mean, maybe, you know, it's like we know we know she's cool with the, the Gungans, but, you know, maybe she draws the line at Tusken Raiders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sand people. I always thought sand people sounded like a pretty uh, bad thing to no, say. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really good point, though. I think I think that uh, Padme's episode one arc is such that she could become a really strong, powerful woman character in the galaxy. And episode two should have honored that by showing her progression instead of being like, oh, now you're ready to retire and have babies? <laughs> it, it seems like, like it just completely skipped like the important, like, important work she was doing in the Senate if we're supposed to give a shit about all the Senate stuff from episode one and episode two. Yeah. It just seems like, yeah, she has, she has nothing to do with that anymore. She's just um, a set decoration. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, I mean, you, I'm glad you brought up, you know, like her work in the Senate because this is another thing I want to point out. And, uh, you know, I've, I, I, I apologize to, you know, any listeners if I'm like belaboring this stuff too much because I'm sure it's nothing, you know, every Star Wars geek hasn't thought about. But at the same time, I think one thing that really distresses me is the the fact that, you know, she, you know, we, we understand that like her main you know, role in the Senate, her main goal at the beginning of the film is to defeat the, the Military Creation Act. That is her signature issue uh, as a politician. And so what does she do? Like while while this is being voted on, she um uh, she runs and hides with Anakin. You know the uh, the minute you know Palpatine says you know go hide, which you know come on, like it she doesn't have to uh, doesn't have to do what he says. That makes no sense at all. Hey man, when you got a picnic, you got a picnic. Yes, yeah, <laughs> with those like CGI like you know bowl creature things. Oh, so romantic. But and then and then on top of that, like who does she leave in charge? She leaves Jar Jar in charge. Jar Jar who she has been working with for ten years, so she knows, you know, what an absolute moron he is. And and she, he's the one that she's gonna trust to fulfill her will in this this vote. I mean, like it, it like how stupid did George Lucas think Padme was? I mean, he must have thought she was as stupid as Jar Jar to uh you know make that. I think he just wrote things. I think he wrote things because they were supposed to happen and it was convenient to be like, oh, this character doesn't have something to do. I know, they'll vote. It's interesting they give Padme a couple uh, moments and, and they're not very great moments except in retrospect, I think. Like during the movie, I don't think it's... it's. It, I, what I'm trying to say is I think it's more noticeable on repeat viewings, but like she warns the Jedi Council like, you know, I, I, I think that Dooku is behind this, blah, blah, blah. And then the Jedi Council says that they're weakened. 
Like the, that, that their force powers aren't nearly as strong. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, Th- that was weird. It's like take everything that's cool about Star Wars and and you're just completely muting it. Well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you you brought up uh, the the scene where she says she thinks Count Dooku's behind the attack and and that's uh, I I don't know what it is. I mean, it's partly n- nostalgia, I think, but like I actually really really like that scene and I like that conversation between Palpatine and the the Jedi Council and the the, the whole exchange of you know we're, we're keepers of the peace not soldier and soldiers and the the perverseness of the jedi wanting you know this grand army of the republic to be created even though it kind of goes against their code you know because they're 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 overwhelmed and they you know want you know some of the responsibility for dealing with the separatists taken off their shoulders and then i actually think it's it's kind of a a, a nice moment of when palpatine says you know i think count dooku is behind it and you know, Mace Windu says, you know, he couldn't assassinate any, any, anyone that's not in this character. And it's it's actually kind of perceptive. It's like, oh, you know, Mace Windu is mansplaining to uh, a female senator. <laughs> yeah, he deserves to die after that. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> your, your words, not mine. Not, 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 not just die, but uh, get electrocuted and have his arm severed and thrown oh, out a window. Man. Like, like clearly so good. hated Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> I can't not talk about that. No, I, I think Samuel L. Jackson wanted a good death. That was his only stipulation. And uh, that is definitely the most Wu-Tang death of all time. It's so good. But uh, he, we'll talk he, about he that got, next He got episode, an epic death. Right? He wanted it and he got it. <laughs> I'd love to talk about the villains in the prequel trilogy a little bit. Yes, absolutely. I've been thinking about it, and, and I, I, I keep going back to this revisionist idea. Oh, they shouldn't have killed Darth Maul. He could have lasted the whole trilogy, etc., etc., but I think episode two really, really, really uh, complicates things as far as the villains. Um, and I, I, I'd like to talk about that. Do you, I mostly think... I, I don't know why they didn't consolidate all the villains into one dark Jedi apprentice, just, you know, like Darth Maul. It seems to me like Count Dooku is an unnecessary character completely. Uh, to me, it's just, oh, we need to have someone with a lightsaber... And we need to fight them. Uh, and, and for me, that that's just sort of indicative of the whole trilogy and um, the excess involved. Yeah, I know. I, I think you're right, Josh. I mean, I think there needed to be one villain. I mean, there, there needed to be a, a unifying figure of evil in the vein of uh, Darth Vader in the original trilogy. And, and much as I love uh, Darth Maul, and I, I really do. I mean, he's one of my favorite Star Wars characters. I, I feel that you needed a, a different a different character to be that figure other than than Darth Maul because you know he's he's an assassin basically he's not you know especially charismatic he's he's not a leader you know he's a guy who sneaks around killing people essentially and and the truth is i feel like you needed a political leader like count dooku who could have appeared in in, in all three films i mean i really think you kind of needed you kind of needed that, you know, overall, because you you have to have someone who can can lead the lead the separatists. You know, I, I don't I don't see Darth Maul uh, doing that. I mean, like I think, like if I, I think basically you needed a cooler version of Count Dooku. Like you needed a, a Count Dooku would be who would be sort of like Qui Gon if he completely broke away from the the Jedi Order. 
you know, you needed, I mean, if we're talking Liam Neeson villains, like you needed a, a Qui-Gon, you needed like a Qui-Gon who is sort of like Raz al Ghul, who, you know, who, who's like, you know, frustrations and desires would, would be based on real injustices, but would be like, you know, taking them to, to such extremes that they would become, you know, completely evil. And so I, I think it, you know, it's very disjointed that you have Darth Maul, you know, uh, appearing in the first film, then getting killed. And then in the second, you have Count Dooku introduced at the very end. He's then killed off, you know, at the beginning of the, the third film. So he's really not in there much at all. And, and then, you know, all of a sudden you have, you know, General Grievous kind of shoehorned in there, which feels very awkward. And you have the Trade Federation to deal with as well. You know, it's very, uh, it, it's very ungainly. It's, it's very awkward. It's convoluted. And it's just, it's a far cry from the original trilogy where you had such a, a very simple hierarchy of, you know, Palpatine, Vader, Imperial officers, stormtroopers. Like, that was so clean. And instead, like, in the prequels, we, we got this, uh, we got this jumble. And, and we needed, like, another villain other than Palpatine since Palpatine had to be, you know, the guy in the shadows and couldn't be revealed until, you know, the very end. So I think you're absolutely spot on. I, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, that, that was a big problem. I mean, my question to you then would like, would be like, do you have like sort of a, a, a dream villain or, or, or kind of villain who could have, you know, synthesized like the, the qualities of the antagonists we got? Hmm. I mean, it's a good question. Yeah. I, I think, I think they could have done the interplay of like, Darth Maul serving, um, you know, the Emperor, uh, and he sort of does the dirty work. But um, I think for that to work, they would have not had the the end lightsaber sequence in Episode One at all. Yeah, or it would have been cut short or something like that. Um, I think it would work better if he was more menacing and he's the assassin, but you don't really see him that much. And then in episode two, they have a big battle or something, or maybe he dies at the end of episode two. Um, but I, I think what you touched on earlier, too, is like you could have somebody that's not in the shadows. You could have um, I, I'm suddenly thinking of like like someone like Alan Rickman or, or like an older, like tenured British actor um, that that also is like um, attuned to the force. Um, I think that could be, uh, I, I don't know exactly what, but I think that could be um, one way to do it, where they're on both sides, uh, both as either a former Jedi or or um, as like a politician that has this secret dark Jedi tendency. I, I don't know. I'm sure there's a billion like fan fiction or, or extended universe books and, and stories out there that, that probably would just crush it, but. I don't know. To answer your question. I, I I don't know if I have a great answer. Just not how they did it. <laughs> I think you know though. I mean, what, what it brings up like I mean, you mentioned fan fiction. I, I mean, I, I I can't resist like getting into sort of like my own fanfic, you know, rewrite of episode two. I think one of my biggest problems of the the with the film is that I feel like Obi Wan's you know part in it is so unemotional like he's basically just doing kind of bland detective work and my, it's my super procedural of, yeah it's procedural, step one step yeah. two step three yeah which is why like i thought you know one way 
that you know that would have you know given him you know a, a kind of a a more uh, you know heartfelt role in the drama would be if uh, if if Obi Wan had a romance in the film and if he was you know kind of tempted to uh, abandon the the Jedi Order like I I would love it if he he was in he was in love with you know another Jedi who has uh is who and this that this other Jedi is disillusioned with you know the corruption in the the Senate and has you know gone over to the separatists and wants to bring Obi-Wan over as well and and then you have like you, you know an actual you know conflict of feelings conflict of ideas I mean I think I think again that's what's missing because you know neither Anakin nor Obi-Wan you know has uh, you know a particularly intense relationship uh with you know Dooku or Darth Maul whereas uh you know Luke and Vader at various times like always had a you know a you know a very rich dynamic because of at first it came from Luke wanting revenge and thinking Vader killed his father and then it's you know knowing you know Vader is his father and wanting to to save him so I mean anything that could have been done to like you know bring that kind of emotion back in there so it's not like oh we just have to kill Darth Maul because he's bad you know oh we just you know have to kill you know Dooku because he's the leader of the separatists and we don't like that. No, you're absolutely right. All the action, well, the whole movie, but the action scenes especially. And I've talked about it before, but they have no stakes. Yes, they're trying to survive. Yes, they're trying to not die or to kill this person or whatever, but it's all base level. There's no, there's no like meta of like, oh, I, I don't want to fight you because of this. Or I'm, I'm fighting because I politically believe in this. There, there's no subtext. There's no stakes. It's just action for the sake of action. The fall of a Republic and the fall of a Jedi. Those are the twin tragedies that define the Star Wars prequel trilogy. And while Chancellor Palpatine's corruption of both the Galactic Senate and his protege are sloppily chronicled over three films, they are elegantly refracted through a single sequence in Attack of the Clones. The fateful night when Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi pursue bounty hunter Zam Wessel across the skies of Coruscant. The conversation before the chase matters as much as the chase itself. You look tired, Obi-Wan observes while he and Anakin stand guard outside Senator Padme Amidala's quarters. Anakin is haunted by visions of the mother he left behind on Tatooine. I don't know why I keep dreaming about her, he tells his master. I'd much rather dream about Padme. Bristling at Anakin's lust for the senator from Naboo, Obi-Wan delivers a rebuke that is both personal and political. You've made a commitment to the Jedi Order, a commitment not easily broken, he declares imperiously. And don't forget, she's a politician, and they're not to be trusted. Thus begins a clash between logic and emotion, with Obi-Wan cynically alluding to Palpatine's knack for following the passions and prejudices of the senators, and Anakin vaguely insisting that he supports the Chancellor because he is a good man. With surprising grace, George Lucas and co-writer Jonathan Hales encompass Anakin's entire character arc in the prequels during the conversation. Everything that dooms the character's damaged soul in Revenge of the Sith, the trauma of being torn from his mother, his obsession with Padme, and his willfully blind faith in Palpatine, is invoked. It doesn't hurt that the scene begins on a balcony so high that we can't see the streets below. Like the Republic itself, Anakin and Obi-Wan loom, 
reveling in a world of rituals and royalty. Their pursuit of Zamwessel takes them out of Padme's futuristic ivory tower and down to a ground-level nightclub, a wretched hive of scum and villainy not unlike the Moss Eisley Cantina, where Obi-Wan will wind up in a few movies. This is foreshadowing at its purest and most elegant. Attack of the Clones whets your appetite not only for the tragedy of Anakin Skywalker and the government that he serves, but for the grungier, grimier, and grander days of Star Wars to come in episodes 4, 5, and 6. I find that, you know, like, like sometimes like there are certain scenes in, you know, in Attack of the Clones where I watch them and I go like, gosh, you know, people could give George Lucas too much credit, you know, for being a, the, being a visionary. And then, you know, like, uh, I look at scenes like the speeder chase and I'm like, my God, he doesn't get enough credit. Like even in a movie that's an absolute shit show, you know, there, there are moments of transcendence that are are better than scenes in some really good movies. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's just kind of funny. I think I like pinball between those, you know, it, it two bowl, poles of like being like kind of furious with George Lucas and also like kind of defensive of him as well. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I think every Star Wars fan struggles with that to some degree. I think to myself, like maybe he wouldn't be a good writer. He should just be a director. Then I think about all the <laughs> actors who talk about his directing style, you know, faster, more intense. I think, I think, like, I think oh, you'll I, maybe I know. like the, you can't win. The, the, the only, like uh, the only truly, uh, uh, the only answer that would be like a truly fool, foolproof solution would be if like every George Luke, if every George Lucas movie, he came up with an outline and then Lawrence Kasdan wrote all the dialogue and then, you know, Irving Kirshner directed, although that's a problem because Irving Kirshner's dead now, so I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, we as long as we're dreaming, yeah, I'm sure some some hot new cinematographer, too, and we can get Marsha Lucas to edit it. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, it's, it's so funny, like, Marsha Lucas apparently, you know, did not even think, you know, A New Hope was that good, you know, which, you know, is ironic since, you know, she played such an instrumental role in, you know, making that film great. So it's 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 time for a grand finale, our our, our voices of Star Wars segment where we, uh, you know, each uh, do a, a a probably really bad, you know, a voice from <laughs> the the Star Wars movie we're talking about. Although I I have a slightly uh, better one than than last. Uh, time and this I, i'm really proud of myself because this is super uh this is super dorky i i i can uh, i can say a couple lines of uh uh the geonosian uh, archduke oh. so 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 get ready ready i'm ready right. i'm ready and, and for those not in the know uh, not in the know that means settle down settle down in geonosian <laughs> So. Do you do you know any more, or did you specifically learn that line? Uh, that that's all I know. They they uh, they, they there's a, there's another part of the line which is let the executions begin, but I, I can't make head nor tails of it. It sounds something like. That's pretty good, actually. I haven't nailed that one yet. But but I really think you know the Archduke is is one of the great underrated uh, 
Star Wars characters, and I, I, uh, I, I think that instead of uh, doing Solo, they should have done uh, Archduke Poggle Lesser, uh, a Star Wars story. <laughs> I think the world would have been better. Those are the stories that need to get told. They really are. They really are. The, the stories that speak to the human, uh, excuse me, Geonosian condition. Uh, for my character voice, uh, I chose a little unexpected uh, cameo, if you will. Uh, and apologies in advance, because this is also going to be as bad as all my other uh, voices. <clears throat> Annie? <laughs> Little Annie? Nah! <laughs> Hold on. <coughs> oh, it takes it out of you. You are Annie. It is you. <laughs> nope. <laughs> you know, the scary thing is that was actually really good. Like, that was... Uh, oh, my gosh. That, that, was, that was going full water there. <laughs> <laughs> the record, I don't share your opinion. That was awful. <laughs> I'm going to have to uh, practice that more because that's a, a voice killer. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, I just I just have to go off on a, a Watto tangent here since since you did the line, Josh. Uh, uh, which do you prefer, Watto with a hat or without a hat? Oh, a hat, obviously. I'm pro hat all the way. Me too. Yeah, I, I think it makes him like a, a little more approachable, and it's like, oh, he's stylish and kind of cute, and you want to pick him up, but he's also ugly. He's like uh, like a a little like eight pound dog in that way yes yeah there's something kind of dashing about that ridiculous metal fedora and i I love you know the the idea that you know like like george lucas was like you know what like that's how we're going to to show that 10 years (laughs) have passed you know in that time Watto got really into hats not not that that he started graying and looks older no he just got into hats also, contact the action figure department. I've got an idea for the new Watto action figure. <laughs> yes, yeah. That, that's yeah, how I see it. I, I see it as like marketing was like, hey, we really need Watto to change. Do you have any ideas? Could he like wear a jacket or pants or something? No, uh, I think I think I see Watto with a hat. Yeah, that, that's my George Lucas, by the way. I've been practicing. <laughs> well, it's it, it's better than with the Empire Strikes Back, where they made like new Chewbacca figures that were just like spray painted with some like white flecks, like he had like snow in his fur, <laughs> like on Hoth. Like that was that was re- that was really desperate. I mean, I, I mean, I, it could be worse. I I've been watching that Netflix series, The Toys That Made Us, and they talk about Ninja Turtles and how in the heyday of Ninja Turtle action figures. Every single month they turned out a new action figure to the point where they just started making random stuff up. To the and, and you look now and you're like, I don't remember that character because they had dozens and dozens of characters that nobody heard of. I like that approach better, though, than just, hey, let's throw some snow on their beard or, hey, let's put a hat on them. Can I? I, I, okay, I, 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 I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but, you know, since... Since we're talking about like characters and like you know signifiers of, of time passing, you know, I, I just have to look ahead and comment on one of the what I think was one of the great missed opportunities in Star Wars. Like I, I really think that in the Force Awakens, Chewbacca's like fur like should have been like you know mostly gray, and he should have like walked with like a giant gnarled staff. And I, I think it was 
it was such a missed opportunity to have him just be like, no, he just looks like he did in Return of the Jedi. Like, like, like gray Chewie was, you know, like a dream of mine. And it, and it would have been cool if like, he even like fought with his like staff slash cane, like Gandalf or something. It's just, I, I, I haven't gotten over the, you know, the, the I mean, the true fans would say that we all know Wookiees uh, don't age as fast as humans. So, Obviously, it would be another fifty Kashyyyk moon years before he grayed. <laughs> I I feel so bad because I know I know that all this information is probably actually available, and someone listening is like, "Fuck that guy." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're gonna be like, "Like, no, it's actually this number of Kashyyyk moon years." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh my That's god. amazing. That's all we have for today. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at IamJosho85. Ben is on Twitter at THOBennett, two N's and two T's. You can also find us on Ben's Spider Man podcast, Spidey Scenes. And the Force will be with you always.